From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And away we go. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. My name is Richard Serrett and you found us. This is The Conspiracy Show. And you, dear listeners, are the greatest audience on the planet. I really mean that. Night owls are, I truly believe, generally more intelligent, creative, open-minded, aware. And this show simply would not work at any other time. People who listen to this show, our our research shows, settle in and listen for the entire program. We have morning shows, afternoon drive shows. People listen in their cars, and they actually don't even listen, really. The show is more like wallpaper in the background. And they listen for however long their commute to work or back home. That might be about, you know, 15, 20 minutes. So you simply cannot tackle the kind of subject matter we do on this show in that amount of time. Now listen, the money is in the morning and drive home shows. But I wouldn't trade you, dear listeners, for all the money in Christendom. Well, maybe I'm overstating that a bit, but anyway, you get, you get my point, I hope. Uh, listen, on a sad note, we lost Dr. Roger Lear yesterday, noted ufologist and investigator of alien implants, uh, best known for his claims that he assisted in the removal of some 12 implants from patients. According to a March 15 post at the late podiatrist and ufologist's website, Alien Scalpel, the Southern California researcher and author, was widely known throughout the UFO community for his surgical removal uh, uh, and the study of what some believe to be alien implants. Preliminary reports suggest Lear passed away while awaiting foot surgery related to a 2010 car accident that occurred while returning home from the International MUFON Symposium. And he apparently was battling a long and unspecified illness. I had the pleasure of meeting Dr. Lear on a number of occasions. I visited him at his office in uh, Southern California uh, to tape a television episode of The Conspiracy Show, which that episode has not aired as yet. Hopefully one day it will. Uh, and I met him several times at the International UFO Congress, which is held every February in Phoenix. A nice gentleman. He'll be missed. Uh, welcome to new affiliate, KOTA AM Rapid City, Iowa. And they'll begin, uh, begin carrying the show. Let's see. Uh, March 29th. Rapid City is in South Dakota. That's our first affiliate in South Dakota. So KOTA AM, I'm honored to be part of your lineup. Okay. Now, last week I mentioned that I'd been invited to participate in a roundtable debate on global warming or climate change. And I uh, joined two other skeptics, and we faced off against five global warming alarmists. I use the term unapologetically. Uh, in any event, so you do the math, five against three. Well, if you saw the program, you probably wondered where I was. I was there. I got to speak for about a total of 60 seconds. The program was edited, and just about everything I said uh, ended up on the cutting room floor. It's their show. It's it's their prerogative, and uh, as I say, that's showbiz. Uh, but tonight, I thought I could sort of redress that situation. I, I have a, a noted climatologist with me for the next hour, who's one of the world's leading skeptics on the matter of anthropogenic climate change, meaning he doesn't believe human activity is responsible for global warming. So this will not be a roundtable debate. I have not invited alarmists on the program, and this is what I call equal time. 
because quite frankly, you only get to hear people like my guest on shows like mine, and that's a shame. Uh, in fact, on his uh, website, uh, friendsofscience.org, there's a wonderful quote, and I believe it's from Thomas Huxley, who says, skepticism is the highest of duties, an unerified, unverified belief, the one unpardonable sin. In any event, a great pleasure to welcome back to the program, renowned environmental consultant, former professor of climato- <coughs> excuse me, climatology at the University of Winnipeg. He served on many local and national uh, committees and as chair of provincial boards on water management, environmental issues, and sustainable development. Dr. Timothy Ball's extensive science background in climatology, especially the reconstruction of past climates and the impact of climate change on human history and the human condition, make him the ideal head of the National Resources Stewardship Project. His other work in such areas as water resources, sustainable development, pollution prevention, environmental regulations, the impact of government policy on businesses and economics will be invaluable at NRS, as NRSP tackles other issues starting later uh, which began rather in 2007, and he is the author of a brand new book entitled The Deliberate Corruption of Climate Science. Dr. Timothy Ball, how are you, sir? I'm fine, Richard, and uh, thank you for the opportunity. And um, yes, I, I uh, feel sympathy for your situation on that panel. That's all right. Um, I don't want to dwell on it. I was I was uh, honored right. that they would ask me. Uh, I just, yeah. you know, if people were wondering, you know, uh, after I had mentioned that I was going to be on the program, where was I? <laughs> so yeah. I just... I, but, but I think there's an important point to make, Richard, because I was invited and turned it down. Now, that, of course, is, is a surprise to many media people. I turn a lot of programs down, and they can't believe it. They think anybody would do anything to appear on the radio or TV. But here's the point that I make about uh, I'm prepared to debate with anybody. I've always, always said that. I'll debate with anybody. But here's the situation. If you, if you, before, if it's before the public, so the public are listening to the debate, if you have two climate uh, specialists debating, the public simply don't understand what they're talking about. If you have, um, anybody else debating climate, then it becomes a, a political harangue, uh, you know, ad hominems, personal attacks, and, and uh, you know, you don't care about the planet and all this other uh, political nonsense. So it really achieves nothing. And uh, so that's uh, I, uh, what you're doing tonight, and I really appreciate this opportunity, uh, not that I'm afraid to debate, but because uh, we need to get the facts out there and, and let people hear the other side of the story and make up their own mind. I keep uh, reading uh, uh, in uh, Scientific American magazine, uh, Time magazine, yeah. other notable uh, publications, uh, even some of the, the climatology uh, or the climate uh, uh, science uh, institutions, that we are now officially into the 15th, 16th, or maybe 17th year of a global cooling trend, yeah. uh, and yet even that now is still being disputed by the, the climate the climate change alarmists. Are we settle this for once and for all for me, if you can? Are we in a global cooling trend or not? Yes, we are, and uh, it began as you said uh, 17 years ago. Um, I, I put it uh, the turnaround in, 19, in 1998, and uh, we've been on a cooling trend since then. Um, and uh, it, it, this fits in with what Thomas Huxley said uh, 150 years ago. He said the great 
bane of science is a lovely hypothesis destroyed by an ugly fact. And of course, <laughs> the the idea that um, the global temperature, even if even if you say, okay, it, it's just leveled off, it's not supposed to have done that, according to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, because what they've argued is that uh, CO2 increase, uh, as CO2 increases, the temperature increases. And um, they worked very diligently up till uh, year 2000 to make that argument and say, look, see, this is what's happening. But since 2000, the global temperature has leveled and gone down, but CO2 levels continue to increase, which is in complete contradiction to what they claimed that they were 95% certain about. And, and so, of course, they're scrambling around, and, and we hear all of the excuses of, oh, the, it's the, the heat's hiding in the ocean, and it's just a hiatus, and it's just a pause, and all of this other stuff. Um, but, but as I said, it's simply not supposed to happen. Well, last night we had hail in Saudi Arabia, a snow in, uh, in India. Uh, in December, we had snow in Cairo for the first time in 100 years. And I understand that those are isolated. You have to look at the we, – we keep hearing this term, average global temperature. But I'm thinking, what the heck is an average global temperature when two-thirds of the Earth's surface or whatever it is is covered in water? And, uh, I mean, that – the uh, the number of sensors that that record the temperature on the land i mean they they are a bunch of them disappeared in china that was a big scandal uh what is an average global temperature well what they claim it is uh, is 14.7 degrees celsius but it as ross mckittrick at guelph university has written a wonderful article on that there is no average global temperature Uh, um it really is a meaningless thing um and uh so this this argument about what what a global mean temperature is and what trend and what direction it's going and then what's causing that change in the trend um are are very central to the whole debate and uh but of course the, the part of the problem is those serious scientific debates have been overtaken by the use of climate uh, particularly global warming initially for the political agenda. That's what it's being used for. Uh, and, and some of the keys of that were when they start talking about consensus. Well, consensus is nothing to do with science. It, it's got to do with politics. And the use of the word skeptic. Uh, for, the, for the public, a skeptic is somebody who really doesn't believe in anything. Whereas in science, you have to be a skeptic. You have to challenge everything. I mean, that was the, the whole point of that quote that you read earlier. Um, and and um, so uh, to call a scientist a skeptic is to call him what they, what they should be. The biggest problem in today's world are scientists who, who don't, are not skeptics, that they, they buy into uh, anything and accept anything without questioning it. And, and that, that, and, and it's like Richard Lindzen said about the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. He said, you know, the, the consensus or the agreement on the science was, was settled before the research had even begun. And, and that's what's been going on. So, uh, the idea about what is an average global temperature, yes, you, you can take all the data from around the world and average it out and come up with a number. Um, but, it 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 really is it really has no meaning here's the other uh, um, point that has 
sort of been bandied about, and, and uh, I'd like to get your take on it. And that has to do with the the levels of CO2. And we'll, we'll get to this. We hear the music percolating up, and we'll, we'll talk about this on the other side. But whether or not uh, CO2 is a lagging indicator, in other words, what comes first? Increased CO2 levels yep. followed by a rise in temperature or a rise in temperature by CO2. I mean, has that even been settled? And we'll discuss that. Yep. with Dr. Timothy Ball, the author of The Deliberate Corruption of Climate Science, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Dr. Timothy Ball is with us, and the book is, his new book, The Deliberate Corruption of Climate Science. Before the break, uh, Dr. Ball, I was asking you about whether or not CO2 is a lagging indicator. In other words... There, there, are, there is an increase in CO2 in the atmosphere, but does that come first, then the rising temperature, as we're being told, or does it work the other way around, or do we even know? Well, we do know, and, um, it, of course, the first thing people need to think about is why has all of the attention been on CO2? Um, it is a very, very minor gas in the atmosphere, and of those gases that they call greenhouse gases, that is, gases that supposedly uh, prevent heat escaping from the Earth's surface out to space or slows it down, um, it's less than 4% of the total greenhouse gases. And water vapor is by far the most important. But beyond that, uh, they also, so, so why have they picked that one little gas to focus upon? And then, um, and the answer is, by the way, uh, and I talk about this a great deal in the book, because uh, they wanted to argue that there were too many people and people that were practicing industry uh, were putting out CO2 that was causing uh, global warming and was going to destroy the Earth. So it became the focal point. Uh, they've, they've distorted it to the point where you've got the President of the United States talking about carbon pollution when he really is talking about CO2. Carbon is a solid and CO2 is a gas, so he's got that confused. And then CO2 isn't a pollutant. It's a nutrient. It's a nutrient, exactly, for the plants. And um, in, in a sort of tongue-in-cheek thing, in one uh, submission to the Supreme Court that I was involved in, we, we proposed that we'd get power of attorney on behalf of the plants to vote against any attempts to reduce CO2 <laughs> in the atmosphere. It's sort of a Greenpeace kind of game, you know. But, but, but uh, your specific question is, it goes to uh, what, they, what they assumed. They said if CO2 increases in the atmosphere, then the temperature will go up. And then they assumed that CO2 will increase in the atmosphere because of uh, countries industrializing, burning fossil fuels and producing more CO2. And um, so that was, a, that was a fundamental assumption. And um, it's, Richard, in any scientific hypothesis, you know, you're saying, well, this could happen if, if, if. So the hypothesis is based upon certain assumptions. The fundamental one that uh, human industry will cause runaway global warming, the fundamental assumption is that um, uh, CO2, an increase in CO2 will cause an increase in temperature. The problem is that in every single record we have of any duration 
of any time period in history, the temperature increases before the CO2. In other words, it's the complete opposite of the assumption that they make. And um, just to put this in a scientific term, like with Einstein's um, theory of relativity and his formula E equals MC squared, which of course the most famous formula in history, um, what what that uh, what the assumption there is nothing can go faster than the speed of light. Well, if you're going to undermine Einstein's theory, you don't attack the formula. The formula is the end product of logical, mathematical uh, working out of your assumptions. So what scientists are doing, trying to not discredit uh, uh, Einstein, but simply, as science does, is constantly challenging, constantly trying to, uh, it's never settled, which of course when Al Gore said that was such a stupid thing. But but scientists are, are trying to find things going in, in the universe going faster than the speed of light, and some claim that they have. Well, that doesn't necessarily reject the theory of relativity, but it certainly uh, undermines a major, major assumption that you've made to come up with E equals mc squared. Well, in, in the, uh, the, the global warming hypothesis, which is um, usually referred to as the anthropogenic global warming, AGW. The basic assumption there is that um, CO2, uh, if it increases, the temperature will go up, and it will increase because humans are producing more of it every year. And and therefore, on the basis of that, they're saying, well, you've got to you've got, you've got to shut down the industry. You've got to got to reduce the population of the world, and and, and that that's the issue. Um, now, the idea when when the CO2 uh, argument was put forward initially. Um, and then in 1991, the ice cores from Antarctica came out. And in the bubbles in the ice cores in Antarctica, they claimed that they could detect and measure CO2 changes over time. They also argued that they could de determine temperature uh, from the gas bubbles in, in the ice from the ratio of oxygen 18 to oxygen 16 isotopes. So they produced these graphs, and it was actually a French group uh, that, that did it, and, and uh, it showed the temperature going up and down over a 420,000-year record with the glacials and the interglacials and so on. But it also showed the CO2 going up and down, and everybody leapt on it and said, oh, there it is, there's proof. But not even five years later, um, uh, People looking at the data and looking at the uh, what was going on noticed that in fact the temperature was changing before the CO2, not the other way around. And since then, of course, every single record that we've got shows that that um, uh, relationship. So that throws out the fundamental assumption of the whole claim that humans and human CO2 is causing global warming. Now, the other thing that happened, Richard, was that. In, in, after 1998, or up to 1998, they were talking about global warming because the CO2 was going up and um, uh, the temperature was going up. Uh, but then after 1998 and starting around 2000, the CO2 continued to go up, the, but the temperature started to go down. They didn't go back as proper science would do. They didn't go back and say, look, there, our, our hypothesis is wrong. We need to revisit the science here. They didn't do that. They moved the goalposts. 
they stopped talking about global warming and started talking about climate change. Now, let me uh, jump in here because I'm told um, that the term climate change, or rather the term global warming, was a media-invented term and that the original – um, the, you know, the IPCC and so forth, they, they never talked about global warming in the beginning. They always talked in terms of climate change, which could mean, you know, uh, uh, cool periods of cooling or periods of warming. But the idea is that it's anthropogenic. It's being affected by these CO2 levels. That It was never initially called global warming. And so when we say, ah, you've moved the goalposts, they're saying, not true. We never started off calling it global warming. No, that's not true. They did start out calling it global warming. Now, you can say they didn't do it. Margaret Thatcher was one of the first ones to start this, um, again, for a political agenda. She thought Thatcher wanted to get rid of the coal miners' union in Britain, and she also wanted to introduce nuclear power. So she got her science advisors, and one of them, by the way, was Lord Monkton, who's now opposing what's going on. Um, and they, they put together this stuff saying that, you know, CO2 is... is causing an increase in temperature and because that was that was Thatcher's political agenda that they wanted to fulfill. I could never understand why why Margaret Thatcher would have been uh, thank you for for clarifying that because I mean yeah. I was a fan of Thatcher I know that wouldn't yeah. sit well with a lot of people uh but I could never understand why she would jump on board with that and now you've explained it. Well it, it, it it's what politicians do they always look for some academic or some scientist to justify their political um, theories and ideas. If they can say, well, some, you know, so, and it's the same way you see in academia. You take any university first year course, they got to find some Greek 2,000 years ago that said, you know, it started about it. It gives a legitimacy to it. And, and by the way, um, even Hitler, Hitler's ideas of, about, um, you know, exp- expanding nations and, and powerful nations taking over weaker nations. Um, and he used the um, the the sci- or the well the pseudoscience of, of of Friedrich Ratzel, who was a German geographer, who said that nations were like like um, cells in a body, and they grew and expanded at, at the uh, at the expense of weaker cells around them. And and so all all of these political leaders uh, do this. They look they they'll either start from the academic idea. Kennedy did that. He he took uh, Saul Cohen's idea about politics in a divided world and the the use of trade uh, of food, I should say, for um, a trade weapon. Um, so they all do that. But this is what Thatcher was doing. Um, after Thatcher, of course, it became more different. Uh, once Morris Strong uh, took a, over the whole thing, it, it was um, using – he actually created an agency called the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which he then um, uh, filled up with scientists who were going to agree with him. I mean, Sir John Houghton, for example, had long been talking about the evil of industry uh, and, and industry as a sin and uh, the production of CO2 as a sin. And he became the first chairman of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And Maurice so, Strong, uh, Maurice Strong, I think this is another quote you have on, yeah. on Friends of Science. Uh, yeah. Strong, I think, at the 92 Earth Summit said that the only way, that the only chance we have of saving the Earth is for a collapse of industrialized society. Yes. Well, he, he made that, uh, he initially made that as, as a hypothetical uh, t- in an interview with a woman by the name of Elaine Dewar. 
Now, Elaine Dewar wanted to write a book uh, praising Canadian environmentalists like David Suzuki and Elizabeth May and and, uh, Maurice Strong. Uh, But the more she uh, dug into these people, the more she found they were more corrupt, more driven by a political agenda, um, and using the environment for their political agenda, than the people they were attacking. And uh, so Elaine ended up writing a book that, that was the complete opposite of what she set out to do. I spoke to Elaine about four years ago and said, it's time you updated it. She said I wouldn't go near it. The hate mail, the, the threats, uh, it was unbelievable. She, I, I couldn't believe it. But she spent five days with Morris Strong at the UN, and she said, you know, Strong is using the UN um, as an agency to perpetuate his idea of one world government um, and, um, you, you know, use, use, using the environment uh, as, as the... Uh, stick to beat people over with over the head with and um so yeah that murray strong um orchestrated it but i i think that strong's ideas um and the way he did it was was quite different than what thatcher was doing uh, it was political there's no question about it they're but they're all into the politics of it but it it's it's the degree to which or the the degree to which you're doing it, and the degree to which you want to control people's lives. Because, see, Thatcher, as a conservative, wanted less government. She wanted less control on people's lives, uh, whereas Strong wants total government and total control. That's um, my concern. I, I, yeah. I definitely see uh, a, a Malthusian, a, a Malthusian uh, agenda here lurking in the corner behind this uh, much of the green movement and people tend to think that these are grassroots grassroots movements but they are uh, to my mind and what i've read uh imposed from above for example yep. uh these uh, uh local environmental initiatives uh that are moving in to um, uh, uh municipalities and regional governments and they're forming these non-representative boards that are dictating land use yeah uh this to me is quite scary and uh, I'm definitely doing a, a, another show in the future about Agenda 21, but I see um, a, a soft totalitarianism behind a lot of the green movement. And I mentioned that on the panel the other night, and they were looking at me like I, I had two heads. Oh, of course. Uh, and by the way, I'd love to do the Agenda 21 program with you because I've looked at a great deal of it. See, when Maurice Strong set up the United Nations Environment Program, and, and Elaine Dewar said to him, when in the interview, and he made that comment about shutting down the industrialized nations, and she said, "Well, you know, what? Why, if you got that idea, why don't you run for politics?" He then made probably the most honest statement he's ever made in his life because he said, "Oh, you can't do anything as a politician." And she said, "Well, what are you going to do?" And he said, "I'm going to I'm going to go to the UN where I can get all the money I want and not be accountable to anybody." <laughs> there you go. I guess that was before he fled to China after the Chicago climate exchange fiasco and then the oil for food debacle. Well, and yes, his, he and his son made millions off of that oil for food debacle. Yeah, scandalous. Did, by the way, as did um, uh, Kofi Annan and his son. Exactly. They, Listen, they uh, the UN. They gotta, were in cahoots together on that. Got to take got to take a break, uh, Doctor Ball. Yeah. The deliberate corruption of climate science. More in a moment. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. The Deliberate Corruption of Climate Science, the latest book from Dr. Timothy Ball. I want to talk about uh, the um, these computer models uh, and 
the prediction, of course, is that, uh, or what we're being told is that these computer models verify CO2 will, uh, the increases will, will cause significant global warming. Now, my brother-in-law, um, his area of expertise is marketing, and he said now, uh, he's, while well, he's not a mathematician, a huge part of what he does is to study the outputs from models. Uh, in, in other words, the predictive power of, of a model. And he said he, uh, looked at what he called the R squares. This is not this is not something that uh, that I understand. I mean, you can you can uh, maybe explain it better than I uh, I will. But he said he looked at the R squares from these com- these computer pr- models, which suggest the possible range of outcomes, the prediction. And he said these R squares are 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 too wide. In fact, they don't provide the confidence needed upon which one would base. A massive investment, and I think we're looking at about a trillion dollars so far that has been spent um, to stave off um, uh, CO2 levels. Uh, so, in other words, let's say for a climate model, they predicted a, a two-degree rise, and the statistical confidence window, um, the, the the result is accurate to minus three degrees, ninety-five percent of the time, or more politically pal- palatable, let's say plus or minus one degree, 60% of the time. So uh, he says the 95% is something of a mathematical standard when you're describing statistical confidence. So when you see one stated with less than 95%, alarm bells should ring. So again, he's saying the R squares that suggest the possible range of outcomes. This is the prediction. They're too wide. Does that make sense to you? Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, let's, Let's go back a bit with this because... Um, and I'll, I'll build up to the computer models and what, what your uh, friend is saying. Um, when Maury Strong set up the uh, United Nations Environment Program and then at Rio and then Agenda 21 came out of that, and by the way, one of the things they built into that is the precautionary principle, right, which is the old environmental uh, argument that, well, shouldn't we do it anyway? Um, and uh, And in that precautionary principle in the the Agenda 21, it's principle 15, they say, you know, scientific certainty isn't necessary. Well, who decides what scientific certainty is, which, of course, is what what your friend is saying about the accuracy of the model and the scientific certainty. The other thing that Maury Strong did was, so the Agenda 21 was the political side of the agenda of one world government, total government control of everything. The other side of it was the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And they were set up under the United Nations Framework um, a Commission on Climate Change. They wrote the definition of climate change that these scientists in the IPCC were going to research. Now, this is a very important idea for so much of what you look at, Richard, the conspiracy thing. I used to think that Government inquiries were great because you say, finally, we're going to get the politics out of this issue. We're going to get some neutral agency that's going to come in and look at all the facts, get those damn politicians out of it. Uh, Great. The very first commission of inquiry I was appointed to was in Manitoba, Canada, where there was a huge dispute over a lake, Dauphin Lake. And the the people were fighting and arguing, and finally the minister said, okay, we'll we'll have a commission of inquiry. And I was appointed to the commission of inquiry. Uh, The first thing we get for 
from the politician and the bureaucrats is the terms of reference and the limits of what we are to look at. And they were such that they predetermined the outcome of the inquiry. In fact, there was data that we couldn't even access. So what I did was I went to the chairman, Doug Duncan at the time, and said, look, tell the minister, unless I am given total access to all data and all information, I'm going to go to the media and say the minister is trying to predetermine the outcome of this inquiry. Well, of course, the minister decided that was a bit of bigger political risk than giving me the information. I then discovered that there had been, over the previous hundred years, three commissions of inquiry, one as early as 1876, where they said, here's the problem on the lake and here's the solutions, and nothing had been done about it. Because it, the commission of inquiry was put in place just to shut people up until the problem went away. Okay? Now, if you think about, and, and just to, to illustrate my point, I was watching Justice Warren. What we can say with the biggest conspiracy theory is the, the killing of, of, of Kennedy. Sure. Okay? I'm watching Judge Warren, who was put in charge of the Warren Commission that was to investigate the Kennedy assassination. The interviewer said to him, well, why didn't you look at the uh, mafia connection in Dallas? with Jack Ruby and, and, and all of that side, Justice Warren very calmly and quietly said, it wasn't in my terms of reference. I knew exactly mm. what he was saying. Mm -hmm. What he was saying was, I was told not to go there. And uh, But of course, for the majority of the audience listening, that comment just would fly right by them. And my experience is that virtually all conspiracy theories arise out of this government avoiding an issue, covering up an issue, trying to uh, divert from an issue. And and so this is what Maurice Strong did with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Okay, I've got to jump in here, Dr. Ball. We'll yep. take a time out. The deliberate corruption of climate science, more. Here on The Conspiracy Show, stay with us. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Dr. Timothy Ball stays with us, the deliberate corruption of climate science. Uh, I want to uh, ask you about uh, uh, comments by um, Professor Emeritus uh, Don Easterbrook, who is at the University of Wa Western Washington, I believe. He's a, a geologist and uh, knows about, uh, you know, very well versed in climate science, obviously. And he predicted this global trend, uh, oh, 15 years ago. And he, he said it's going to happen because I, basically, it has to do with ocean currents, the Atlantic and Pacific uh, decadal uh, oscillations or something like that. And turns out, I mean, he, he, he predicted that flying in the face of the IPCC predictions, and turns out he was right. So is that, uh, is that been taken into consideration, these ocean currents? But, well, no, but, but you see, this goes back to what, you know, where we went to break just now, and I was going to tell you that the definition of climate change given to the IPCC by Maurice Strong was only to look at climate change caused by human activity. Now, you cannot possibly identify that if it's there if you don't know how much climate changes naturally and, and uh, what the mechanisms of those change are. And, and of course, what, what Easterbrook is doing 
is saying, look, um, these other mechanisms of, of climate change, ocean current changes and so on, and um, other ones, uh, the solar uh, changes in the sun, the orbit of the Earth around the sun, and all of these things, none of those are included in the IPCC uh, reports or their computer models. And, and so for You're absolutely people, certain about that because they deny that. They say, oh, yes, we've, we've looked at all of this stuff. No, they haven't looked at it. Um, you, you can read the report. Um, the chapter, read Chapter 8, what the, what's, what's put into their computer models. Um, and the, the thing I mentioned about orbit of the Earth, um, uh, this is called the Milankovitch effect. The, or, the, uh, the Earth's orbit around the sun uh, goes from almost circular, as it is now, to extreme ellipse, as it was 18,000 years ago. The tilt of the Earth is constantly changing. And as the tilt changes, then the climate changes. And the date on which equinox occurs is constantly changing. And we've known about these things for 150 years. Now, the argument that they're not in the uh, IPCC computer models is because they say, oh, the time scale is too long. But if you're making forecasts for 50 and 100 years, these factors come into play. They're not in their computer models. And, and um, there's the idea about the relationship between sunspots and uh, global temperature. Uh, we've known of the mechanisms since 1991. They, they don't even mention it in their reports. And, and so um, it, what, what they put into their reports and, and study and what they put into their models predetermines an outcome that says human CO2 is causing temperature increase. Uh, but that's what they wanted to do. It's a predetermined uh, result. I... Um... I understand sort of the political motivation behind this. I mean, uh, politicians love to control, and it, it becomes yeah. this synthetic beast. An organization uh, just naturally, uh, you know, uh, seeks out additional control and power. Yeah. Uh, but I don't understand why uh, the media uh, uh, plays this game. And uh, yet another a great quote on, on, on the website comes from the science editor at Time magazine, who says, We have crossed the border from journalism into advocacy on this issue he's talking uh i mean do you have an explanation why are you so pilloried in 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 by the mainstream media why do they avoid you and why why have they crossed that border into advocacy why do they get behind this well because of course uh, the media has become about about money and and um uh, they, they're, look, they're looking for funding and, and selling their paper. And, and, of course, if they're getting money like the New York Times, getting money from the liberals and the left wing and so on, that's what they're going to do. Now, that's shifting, of course. This is very interesting because you look at the Murdoch and Fox News and so on and the collapse, essentially, of the left-wing media. Uh, I, I think, by the way, the U.S. founding fathers would be absolutely appalled because they assumed that the media would be the watchdogs for society that would would dig out this thing and, and say, look, here's another guy, this Tim Ball, he's, he's, he's presenting some other facts. Uh, but the media haven't done that. And, and yeah, the Time Magazine uh, editor is absolutely right. They've become about advocacy rather than about being journalists. And, and anybody, any of the old guard journalists will tell you that. That, that um, in fact, that woman just quit, C, was, what was it, CBC, CBS? Uh, Atkinson, I think was her name. She said, hey, they, you know, they, they, they wouldn't uh, listen to my point of view because I was a Catholic and I, I was a woman and, and, and all these other things. 
So, so um, the media have completely lost their way. Uh, and as I said, the founding fathers would be absolutely appalled at what's going on. Now, having said that, they didn't have a lot of truck with newspaper reporters. I think it was Jefferson that said uh, a person who never reads a paper is better informed than, than somebody who does. But so they, they knew they knew that the, what these people were about, but they recognized their important function in society. But uh, just to flip back, Richard, uh, because uh, you mentioned Malthus earlier. Yes. And all right now, Malthus, his essay on population had a massive influence on our world today and our science today, far more than people realize, because Charles Darwin took Malthus's essay with him on his voyage on the Beagle, was an absolute promoter of, of Malthus's arguments that there are too many people in the world and that people that uh, shouldn't be staying alive are staying alive and so on. Now, Malthus's uh, arguments... And the, the evidence that he used was simply terrible. It was wrong, completely wrong. And what's interesting about it, and Paul Johnson's written about this, Darwin, who was absolutely meticulous in his science and having evidence for every position he took, completely ignored that Malthus did none of this. But because... Just like we see today, uh, and you'll, you'll see a lot of people say, yeah, yeah, oh yeah, the science of climate change and so on, that's all just terrible, but oh, but that overpopulation, that's a real issue, that's a real problem. And, and of course, you see, that's what's behind, um, you remember I mentioned earlier, it wasn't just the industrialized nations, but it, it was the, uh, the, the population that, where the population was growing. Now, Malthus's argument was that the population would outgrow one resource, that is food. That's turned out to be completely wrong. The world f produces enough food right now, crude estimates, produces enough food every year to feed 26 billion people. The problems are in the storage, the loss of the food, uh, the inadequate marketing of the food, and so on. And it's also being used, let's face it, as a weapon in the developing world. All right, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that, that was the whole point of, of, of Kennedy's uh, uh, GATT and trade and tariffs and food as, as a weapon. Absolutely. Most favored nation status and so on. Yeah, absolutely. And, but what happened in the 60s was the Club of Rome was formed, and Morris Strong, of course, was one of the founding members of that. And Kissinger and Brzezinski. Exactly. The Club of Rome decided that Malthus was right, but they took his idea that the, the population would outgrow food supply and said the population would outgrow all resources. And not only that, but those that were industrialized were using up resources at a far greater rate than all the other nations. So this brought in uh, a socialist thing. That, oh, you're, no, you're using too many resources. We're going to punish you. We're going to make you pay for what you're doing and, and give that money to the, the developing nations. That's what the Kyoto Protocol was all about. It was a redistribution of wealth. That's. Uh, I think that's the crux you. of this. That is the crux of this. And I, I also believe in, in, in the Club of Rome, in, in their documents, they talked about the need. It's almost like the, uh, the, the project for a new American century when they talked about the need for a new Pearl Harbor. The Club of Rome talked about the need for some environmental 
cataclysm to galvanize uh, public support so that they could essentially institute a lot of these societal uh, controls. Oh, totally. You, you scare people to death. And what better than the sky is falling, because that's a traditional one, the chicken little thing, and, and that you're all going to fry. And, and so the global warming issue and the CO2 issue became the perfect vehicle uh, for what they were doing. Now, of course, the population issue was pushed by Paul Ehrlich in his book, book Population Bomb, and of course, he's out of Stanford, where so many of these crazy ideas develop. But, but Ehrlich published the book Population Bomb. I mean, the predictions in that are so wrong, even even 30 years later. It's, it's incredible that he has any credibility at all, but he, he does. But he also published a book called um, Eco-Science, with, and his co-author, his wife, was one, but the other co-author was John Holdren. Now, who is John Holdren? John the science Holdren czar. Is, yeah. Uh, yeah, he's the science czar in Obama's White House. He's the guy that made a two-minute video about polar vortex out of the White House with all of the authority that that supposedly uh, gives. And yet the, the video has so many scientific errors in it, you don't even know where to start. Um, but John Holdren was promoting uh, eugenics. He was promoting um, uh, forced abortions. He was promoting uh, a limiting of, of marriage between certain people, uh, all sorts of attempts at population control. That's where Hitler got his racial hygiene uh, laws from the United States back in the 20s. Yeah, exactly. And 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 um, so Holdren was very very much a part of that. And here he is in the in the Obama White House, and and um, but a lot of people don't know that Al Gore was the key person putting together with Maurice Strong a, a po- world population conference in Cairo, Egypt in 1994, because the overpopulation issue underlies everything that they're doing, not just the, the global warming, but, um, you know, all of it. And the next issue, by the way, is, is they're working on now is water. They're already talking about peak water like they talked about the fallacy of peak oil. Well, you know, words like uh, – they, they sound nice and, and uh, uh, benign, and actually they sound quite good. Words like yes. social justice and sustainable development. and yep. uh, But these uh, – if you scratch beneath the surface, what they really mean by uh, social justice uh, is uh, they – basically they don't want you to have a backyard. They don't want you to have private property. They don't want you to have a private automobile. Uh, you know, the smart development is they want us to all live in, in stacked houses uh, on a subway line uh, where we're told where to work, where to live, how to live, what to eat. Uh, this is where it's going. And this is, uh, you know, again, when you when you say this to people, they look at you like you have two heads. So uh, we are going to do that show on Agenda 21, uh, Dr. Ball. And I thank you for the last hour. And um, I think, you know, hopefully we've redressed some of the uh, uh, inequalities in, in the coverage of this issue. Well, and, and as I always say, when I make presentations, I'm going to give you a biased presentation because I'm going to give you the side you haven't heard. All you've heard up to now is one bias. Put the two together and draw your own conclusions because what's happening in today's world is people are telling people what to think and how to think. And, and that, to me, is, is the end of humanity. 
Well, I appreciate, uh, again, your time tonight. And uh, the book, once again, is entitled The Deliberate Corruption of Climate Science. Very quickly, how do they get the book, Dr. Ball? Well, they can go to my website, uh, Dr. Tim Ball, D-R-T-I-M-B-A-L-L, dot com. And it's available there, but it's also available on Amazon and Kindle. All right. Thanks again. We'll talk soon. Thank you, Richard. All right. My website, richardserrett.com. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth.